This is really a forward-looking view. We're thinking about where the central banks are going to stand, not now, but maybe three to six months out into the future, because it's really about what's driving inflation in different markets. So when you look at what's happening in the US now, the contribution from energy inflation has come down quite quickly. The contribution from the good side is also coming down. And then they're left with services inflation, which is also starting to show some signs of easing. This is the Finamize podcast. I'm your host, Eddie Donmez. In this episode, I'm joined by Hugh Gimber, an executive director and global market strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management. We review the Bank of England's latest interest rate decision and take a look at the outlook for the UK economy and markets. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. I think today's decision was the right one. I think when you step back and question what the Bank of England was trying to signal today, I think they probably had a couple of different objectives. One was that they were looking to send the message that they are still serious about tackling inflation. But two was that also they're cognizant of some of the risks to the economy that are being posed by the recent stress in the banking sector. And so that was the challenge for them. It was the challenge for the Fed last night. It was the challenge for the ECB last week. All central banks at the moment are having to really try and assess to what extent this banking stress is going to change the outlook of the economy in the second half of the year. And the problem is that no one has the great answer for that so far. We know the channels by which it might impact the economy, particularly bank lending, but we don't know how big a hit that we're looking at. And therefore, I think the Bank of England made the right decision by saying, look, the data that we have today justifies higher interest rates and therefore we're pushing ahead with a hike. But we also have to recognize that the path after this is becoming a lot less clear. Right. And um, I'm sure they were very pleased to see inflation re-accelerating earlier this week, gave them a bit of a headache. Um, Can you just walk through that data, what came out, why it was concerning, um, you know, to, to the Bank of England? and what the outlook for inflation is going forward from the JP Morgan uh, asset management perspective. Yeah, of course. I mean, that was an ugly print for the UK economy. Let's not um, try and be too nice about it. it uh, inflation was re-accelerating at a time where economists were expecting it to slow. The Bank of England was expecting it to slow as well. So inflation moving in the wrong direction is not good news for the BOE. Now, when you think about why it's been re-accelerating, I think there is another problem here, which is that inflation is broadening out across the UK economy. So we can't just say that inflation is high because of some kind of aftershock from the pandemic or just because of war in Ukraine. We're seeing now that domestic inflationary pressures are picking up as well. And so when you look through the commentary that accompanied the um, data print yesterday and also just picking through the different components of the inflation basket. You see things like restaurants and hotel prices picking up. You see food prices picking up as well. You know, these are domestically sourced pressures that are now sending the signal that inflation is becoming quite entrenched in the UK. So that I think was the worry. If this was only just a spike in global energy prices, for example, that was speeding through into the UK, then it might have been easier for the Bank of England today to say, hey, well, you know, that's out of our control. But it was the fact that this is really embedded in domestic price pressures now that I think gives them more force for thought. Yeah, and that was that re-acceleration to the headline of 10.4%, which is, is 
it's crazy to think that this has now become somewhat normal to have double digit inflation um shows you you know how behind the curve they were you know uh, initially JP Morgan asset management um has labeled the UK or the Bank of England as outside the herd when it comes to central banks globally when we look across to the ECB and the Federal Reserve who obviously had their rate decision yesterday so what what do you mean by that sure so this is really a forward looking view we're thinking about where the central banks are going to stand not now but maybe three to six months out into the future because it's really about what's driving inflation in different markets so when you look at what's happening in the us now the contribution from energy inflation has come down quite quickly the contribution from the good side is also coming down and then they're left with services inflation which is also starting to show some signs of easing right in the eurozone quite a different situation they don't have the same kind of services pressure that you have in the us but it's a much bigger energy component which is proving a bit more tricky to get rid of and then you look at what's happening in the uk you've got a pretty big contribution from services and you've got a pretty big contribution from some of those more volatile components like energy all wrapped up in the one economy and so while we do think that inflation in the uk is going to come down over the next few months I think the risk for the Bank of England is that they find themselves sat six months out in the future and looking quite enviously at other central banks around the world who've been able to pause rate hiking cycles because of the slowdown in the growth outlook. And instead, the Bank of England has to say, well, hang on a minute, inflation is still much higher here. And then maybe we have a bit more work to do. So that's really, I think, that the challenge that the UK and the Bank of England faces, which does look different to some of their peers around other developed markets. Yeah, well said. Um, and there was a comment that just came down the newswire that we talked about before uh, hitting record. The Bank of England uh, Governor Bailey, we have already raised interest rates significantly and we believe inflation will fall rapidly before the summer. So the question to you is, what is the path for future interest rate rises or pauses or, or cuts um, for the Bank of England in, in JP Morgan's view? Sure. So when you look at what markets are pricing today, markets are really unsure about their next move. So when I left my desk 10 minutes ago, I think it was 51.49 in favor of a hike versus no hike at the next meeting. So markets are really unclear. I think when you ask about that inflation trajectory, I agree that inflation is likely to fade and is likely to fade quite quickly over the next few months because the base effects when you're comparing prices this year to a year ago, they're going to start to work in the favor of the Bank of England and they will bring headline inflation down by quite some way over the course of the summer. So it's not so much that we disagree with the direction, rather it's how close are you going to get back towards target? How close are we going to be back towards the 2% goal that the Bank of England has for inflation in the UK? And that's where I personally feel a little bit less comfortable because of that broad-based nature of inflation that I've described. We have a chart in the Guides to the Markets Act that we published where we break down headline inflation into core services, into core goods, into food, into energy. And you see those contributions all pretty meaningful at the moment. That's what gives us some concern that actually markets are saying, and the Bank of England is saying, well, perhaps they're now done. But I do think that there's a risk that they may be forced to actually go a little bit higher than markets are currently expecting, given just that inflation persistence that we're seeing. 
Yeah, there was a few statements in in uh, after the release um, about basically acknowledging evidence of more persistent pressures and then further tightening would be required. And they acknowledged that food and core goods price inflation was significantly stronger than than what was projected. So I think they're pretty pretty aware of some of those. So we've kind of covered now if the. I just, if I could jump in on that point, because I think the the big unknown here is about bank lending. Right, so we've had all of this stress in financial markets over the past few weeks, and I think the natural response to that is for banks to pull back on how much they're willing to lend to the economy. That over time should also help to bring inflationary pressures down. But calibrating the size of that is really difficult in real time. That's why I think at the moment the bank saying we're just not sure we're going to see how the data plays out is probably the right thing for them to be doing. Right, and there's a very famous chart going uh, around, mainly focused on on the U.S. economy, from Torsten Slock of uh, Apollo, talking about conditions tightening and that being evident to a a kind of 1.5 percent interest rate hike. So there's a lot going on with tighter lending standards and and those concerns. So what what could be really useful for the audience listening is how could you can you walk through the mechanism of you know why this could happen um talking about tighter lending standards and how that flows through to the economy yeah of course so there are really two ways that this can happen the first is around deposit rates so for the past 12 to 18 months we've been in this really good period for bank earnings uh, for consumer bank earnings i should say where interest rates have been rising but deposit rates have been slow to catch up right so we've all been feeling this in current accounts, you're thinking, hang on a minute, interest rates have gone up to 3 4%, but I'm still only getting paid 1% or 1.5% on my current account. I'm sure everyone has been seeing similar dynamics. And so during that period, it's a very profitable one for banks. What we're seeing now is that competition for deposits is picking up. You're seeing outflows from a small number of financial institutions that the competition means that other institutions are now having to start to say, right, well, to make sure we keep hold of our deposits, we might have to offer a little bit more and we might have to start putting up the rate that we're paying on current accounts. And therefore, any money that they're lending out is going to be more expensive just by the way that that has to feed through um, from one to the other. So one is about lending costs going up. The other is just a confidence piece here, which is that generally when banks feel really confident about the economy, and they're feeling confident about the markets, they're willing to extend more credit. And then when they start to get more nervous, as we're seeing at the moment with some of the stress in the banking sector, generally banks start to pull back and become a little bit more cautious with how much lending they're willing to do and to whom they're willing to lend. So not only is it about the deposit rate, but it's also just the confidence shock. And as we know, trying to forecast confidence a long way in advance is just really hard, right? There's no perfect economic model to tell you how banks are going to be feeling in six months time, which is why the size of the impact is difficult to say. We know it's going to slow. We're just not sure by how much. Right. I want to go a little bit um, off piece here and um, unpack something you just said that I'm really glad you brought up. So I was speaking to Jeremy Schwartz, the uh, CIO of Wisdom Tree Asset Management, and he was very much voicing his concerns about the flight of customer deposits in those low, you know, yielding, you know, current accounts, let's say, to potentially money market funds and things like that. So we've kind of seen that in the US. So I think it was a stat actually from JP Morgan that said one trillion of those funds have left basically customer deposits. And you would imagine most of that is the regional banks, 500 
uh, billion of that was from the start of 2022. And then 500 billion was that kind of week where the banking crisis was kind of unraveling. We know that this is a concern in the US and the regional banking crisis has really been focused in the US. What can we say about UK banks um, and the health of them? And I know we don't we we don't have a crystal ball, but do you have what's your kind of take on the banking sector in the UK and whether we will see some of these shockwaves uh, kind of move over to the UK and in Europe? Sure. So, I mean, frankly, I agree with the messaging laid out by the Bank of England today, which is that the health of the UK banking system looks strong. We're seeing the impact of years and years of additional regulation post the financial crisis feeding through into improved capital ratios. And by capital ratios, I'm really talking here about like a rainy day fund effectively for the banks that they have to put aside in the event of losses or or economic pressures. So the higher your capital ratios, generally the more secure the, the bank. So we think the bank fundamentals are pretty solid today. That being said, we do expect that deposit rates are probably going to have to rise as that competition for capital starts to increase. And so this is more sort of pressure on bank margins in particular, rather than being worried about any kind of systemic stress. So we think the fundamentals are sound, but there are dynamics here which are putting bank profitability under a little bit more pressure. Hey, I'm Naomi Prakash, Chief Editor at Finimize. Our mission is to help increase the wealth of a generation. Our team of editors and expert financial analysts provide timely insight into the ups and downs of markets and help you make sense of all your investing options. At Finimize.com, you can sign up to our free daily newsletter and try out our premium app for free, where you can find a range of news, analysis and deep dives that cut through the jargon. And with access to an engaged community of like-minded investors, you'll be better placed to make your investments with confidence. So download the Finimize app to try our premium content today. What is JP Morgan Asset Management's outlook for UK equities generally? And where are you finding pockets of opportunity during these kind of uh, interesting times? Yeah, of course. I, I think there are two key points to make here. The first is that generally the UK equity market pays very little attention to what's happening in the UK economy. So when you're looking at the FTSE 100, the biggest um, 100 companies listed in the UK, about 80% of those earnings are being generated from overseas. So whether or not the UK economy is having a rough time is not really that relevant for lots of the biggest components of the UK stock market. So that would be point number one. You know, whilst we're pretty cautious about the UK economic outlook today, that doesn't transfer to the market. The second one is around the income that you can find from the UK stock market. So generally, the composition means that UK markets tend to pay a higher dividend yield than other parts of the world. And in periods where markets get a bit shakier, as we're seeing at the moment, generally that consistent income becomes a much more attractive characteristic. And then to layer onto that, what we're seeing in dividends at the moment is that lots of management teams are still kind of in catch-up mode having hit pause on payouts during the pandemic. So at the time, there was lots of discussion as to whether when companies were receiving support from the government, was it right to be buying back shares? Was it right to be paying out dividends? That's left actually UK corporates in pretty strong shape from a cash position. And therefore there is decent amounts of capital that's coming back to shareholders in the form of dividends. So 
those are really be my two key messages. I think number one, separate your view on the UK economy from the UK equity market. And two, if you're looking for income in global stock markets today, the UK is a particularly interesting place to be doing so. Really interesting. And could I just press you a little bit more in just in terms of the actual sectors, right? So there's, you know, a different compos- really composition to the US that's very heavy in tech, whereas the UK is, you know, slightly different. Um, obviously, we've, you know, there's there's potential concerns with real estate and any interest rate sensitive sectors, let's say, um, energy as well. Where are you finding opportunities in in different sectors, and what's your you know what are you optimistic about um, you know for the rest of the year maybe beyond? Yeah, of course. So within the UK market, I think there are two to call out. One is that actually the the profile of the energy market looks pretty solid today. So traditionally, that's been a big drag on um, the UK during periods where the technology sector has been the place to be. In the FTSE 100, there's a very, very small technology sector compared to other parts of the world. But where we're seeing this rotation in the economy back towards kind of real economy sectors and energy stocks being a classic example of that, that would be one area of interest. Obviously, you have to consider kind of picking through that sector to ensure that you are tapping into companies that aren't going to be caught out by the extra pressure from sustainability over the next few years. But that would be one to be thinking about. The other is really digging into where there are sectors which are still heavily discounted relative to where we stood prior to the pandemic, where they're still in that earlier phase of catch-up. And so parts of the industrials would be uh, a call out there. You could think about some of the airlines as well as some of the more interesting opportunities today. Yeah, that echoes some of the sentiment from your colleague, Mike Bell, who I spoke to a few months ago, which is always good. Um, looking outside the UK now, um, there was you know a lot of talk about Europe um, at the at the JP Morgan Asset Management Conference. So where are you seeing opportunities um, on the continent? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think the outlook for Europe has fundamentally changed over the past couple of years. Yeah, it's been a rocky few weeks in, in all markets, but I think what gives us most confidence today is that the drag on Europe for the past decade was really about investment that was being pulled back wherever you look. Governments were just not able or willing to spend. And we think that has fundamentally changed. So whereas government investment was actually contracting during the period post the financial crisis from 2010 to 2019, now you have European governments working together to issue common debt. You have plans like the recovery fund, uh, which is now evolving into some of the Uh, the Green Deal, trying to put money to work in the renewable energy sector, for example. So you've just had this change in the European infrastructure over the past couple of years, where governments are both more able and more willing to be investing in their economy. And that gives us some confidence that actually the earnings prospects for European companies over the next few years look a lot stronger versus, let's be clear, a very difficult period for most of the past decade, where Europe was persistently lagging the US. So it's that change of mindset. It's really that improvement in the institutional infrastructure that I think gives you a very different outlook during the next cycle for Europe relative to the last one. Yeah, um, that was really interesting to hear as well during the conference, kind of contrasting it with the US kind of fiscal approach. Within Europe, um, one of the questions now is about growth versus value. Um, Value looking pretty attractive, but if we think that rates are going to come down or central banks are going to have to cut, then that lowers the kind of 
term and array or the discount rate for these growth companies. And some people have called some of the tech companies, obviously, we have to be selective here, um, defensive almost, um, if we're looking out. So how are you approaching the growth versus value kind of conversation? Um, you know, pick, pick your region, maybe Europe or in the UK. Yeah, of course. I mean, as you say, it really comes down to views on interest rates, first of all. Uh, and so when you look at markets now, markets are getting increasingly confident that interest rates are set to fall quite quickly uh, before the end of the year. And that's where when you look at the inflation data, the UK being a prime example, as I was describing at the start of this call, we're a little less comfortable with that and a little less comfortable with how quickly rate cuts are being forecasted, given some of the pressures in the labor market and given some of that broad based nature of inflation. I think what does worry me at the moment is that when you look at what's been rallying during this period of markets starting to anticipate rate cuts, lots of it has been quite low quality. And so by that, I mean kind of weaker balance sheets, perhaps some of the less profitable parts of the technology sector, for example. And that I find difficult to reconcile because either markets are right and actually rates cuts are on the table because we're looking at a much bigger economic shock as a result of the stress in the banking sector, in that case, you would expect people to be rotating towards higher quality defensive parts of the market. Or if we're not looking at that big economic shock, then rate cuts don't need to be seen this year. And therefore, you'd expect some recovery in bond yields and bond yields pushing higher again to sort of reverse some of the moves that they've been making over the past few weeks. So I think whether you're looking at growth or value, there's a balanced case for having both in portfolios today, but quality is the most important thing to be focusing on. That's in terms of the resilience of earnings. That's in terms of shareholder-friendly activity, like paying out dividends. It's quality management companies as well. That will be the, the key factor to focus on, I think, whether that's Europe, UK, or the US. And looking outside equities now, you kind of touched upon one yields there. One of the big, you know, sentiments from uh, from the conference was bonds are back. So um, is fixed income back and where are you seeing the, the best opportunities right now? Yeah, I, I feel we probably need a new tagline. I don't know about you, but I'm hearing bonds are back a lot at the moment. Um, but I, frankly, I agree with the sentiment. It, it comes down to what you want bonds to be doing in a portfolio. So for me, you want them, one, to be providing income. You'd expect that from fixed income. And two, it's about diversification against pressure on risk assets. So when equities are falling, you want bonds to be rallying. And frankly, with how low yields have got to, it was very difficult for bonds to be giving you either of those characteristics. So you go back a couple of years, we had about $18 trillion worth of negatively yielding debt in the world. And negatively yielding debt is just such a challenging problem if you're trying to build a multi-asset portfolio, because where's the room for yields to fall in the event of a shock to growth? There isn't any, basically. So now, although last year was a very painful year for fixed income investors, frankly, it was a necessary one. We needed yields to reset. They have, and that's restored not only the income, but also then the room for yields to fall if we are looking at a more adverse economic scenario later this year. So that, I think, is why people are rightly excited about fixed income today, because for many years, it's just not been working. And now this reset in yields gives you opportunities, number one on income, number two on diversification. Perfect. And I think that's a nice way to, to end the call. So thank you so much, Hugh, uh, for being with me. Uh, and I hope to see you soon. Thanks for having me.